0: Genesis chapter one. Our study, these Monday nights for the next eight months is gonna be in the book of Genesis. Now, if there are four Monday nights to a month, that means we got 32 Monday nights. So that means that either we're going to have to cover two chapters someplace one night, or we're gonna take two years. And I intend to cover this in one year. And uh, if not, I'm hoping that the Lord will come about the last Monday night. So I'm gonna have to finish it. I used to teach and go about, you know, one chapter in, in about eight weeks, and then ask Mr. Davidson to come in and finish out the book, and he pulled the same trick on me a couple of weeks ago, but uh, what I'd like to do is to take, uh, uh, to cover the book of Genesis in these um, 32 to 35 Monday nights that we'll have together. We'll miss, of course, that Christmas period, a couple of Monday nights there, but we'll have probably about 32 to 35 Monday nights, and we want to cover the book of Genesis. Now, obviously, some chapters are going to take us a little longer than than normal time, and what we're going to do in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is going to take us a little longer than normal because Genesis 1, you know, is a very controversial passage section of the Bible today, and it's going to take us a little longer, and we'll probably spend on Genesis 1 and 2 probably three Monday nights, maybe four, because we wanna study that intensively. On Wednesday morning, Mr. Gingrich is teaching the book of Proverbs at 10.30 a.m. And on Friday morning, that'll meet over in our new chapel, on Friday morning, I'm gonna be teaching the book of 1 Corinthians to the men's class. That's a men of Memphis class, meet 6.30 to 7.30. We're gonna study the um, book of 1 Corinthians. But in our Monday night class, We're going to study the book of Genesis. Now, let's begin with prayer. Father, we thank Thee for this uh, opportunity to study Thy Word. We thank we live in a country where the Bible is an open book. We thank Thee for that hour, that day in which somebody told us of Jesus Christ and of the Word of God, and, and over a period, perhaps, of several months, the Holy Spirit dealt in our life, and just as God created life, light on the first day, so the Holy Spirit created light in our souls. We were born again. We thank thee for that day and hour. We thank thee for this wonderful book. We live in a day of confusion, a day of loneliness, a day of despair, a day of nihilism. We thank thee that we hold in our hands, and we're going to study tonight the only book in the world that has the answers to the ultimate problems of life. We pray, O oh God, Uh, in this this first class, that as we study together, may be a very profitable hour and a very profitable study. And should there be in our midst someone here tonight who is a stranger to the grace of God, who has never embraced Jesus Christ as Savior, we pray that the same Holy Spirit who created light on the first day may create light in the soul and mind of that person and bring him to faith in Christ. For all of us who are Christians, Lord, We pray that this will be a very profitable hour together. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, now tonight, I want to look at uh, two things tonight. I'd like to look at the background of the book of Genesis and cover the first three verses, the first five verses in Genesis chapter 1. Now, if you've got an outline there, and I hope you do have an outline, you'll notice that there's six things that we want to look uh, at as far as the background of the book of Genesis is concerned. We could spend a couple of classes here. We are not going to do so. I may suggest a book or two that you could read, but I don't think it's profitable in the context of our study to spend a lot of time on background. Needless to say, the book of Genesis has been the object of, um, of um, heavy attack by the radical critics, naturally. The book of Genesis has been the focus of attack uh, in the Bible by the critics for years and years and years. Now, let's look at these six things. First of all, the name of the book. The book is called Genesis. Now, where did he get that name? How is it known as Genesis? Now, I think you know that the titles that you find up at the top of your Bible, and I have, they'll have my Bible open to Haggai, or the Gospel according to Luke, or the Gospel according to Matthew, I think you know that those titles are not in the original text. That's not part of the Bible. They were put there later. Now, uh, how did we get that term, uh, Genesis? Well, the first five books of the Bible are called the Pentateuch. Penta is five. We have up near Washington the Pentagon, five-sided building. And T-U-C-K means roll. And Pentateuch means five rolls. And when Genesis was written, it was rolled up like this and formed a scroll. And when Exodus was written, it was... It was on a scroll like this, and when they read, they didn't read like this, uh, and uh, turn the pages, they read across the st- a page, and they read from the back to the front. I have to look at my Hebrew Bible uh, this afternoon. I studied four years of Hebrew, but I very seldom get into it. But I did look at the first verse of Hebrews, of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. It's on the back page. Now it's in codex form, book form. When the Bible was written initially, they put it in the form of a scroll like this. And the book of Genesis took up one scroll. And the book of Exodus took up one scroll. And the book of Leviticus, one scroll. And the book of uh, Numbers, one scroll. And the book of Deuteronomy, one scroll. So there are five of these scrolls. And five is penta. And two, tuk, or tuqos, is scroll, or R-O-L-L. And the Pentateuch is the five rolls. Now, we call them Genesis. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Where do we get those words? Well, the Hebrews, the Jews, named those five books after the first word in each book. The first word in Genesis is Bereshit, which is beginning, in the beginning. The first word in Exodus is that word Exodus. The first word in Leviticus is a word comparable to Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. When it was translated from the Hebrew into the Greek, and the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament is called the Septuagint. And when they translated it from the Hebrew to the Greek, the Greek translators put up at the top of the book, Genesis, Genesis. And at the top of the second book, Exodus. And it was translated into Latin. This first book was called Liber Genesis, or Genesis. And we get our title from that From that. Latin, which goes back to the Greek, which goes back essentially and ultimately to the Hebrew. The first word in the Bible is Bereshit, which means in the beginning. We get the title of this from that name. Now, secondly, the author. Now, you've got on yours, that's number third. Isn't that right? All right, well, I want to look at it secondly. Who is the author of this book? Well. Without going into it extensively, and I'd want to do that, there are two views on this. I was trying to explain to my boy David, who's handing out these outlines coming down, and uh, about the authorship. He was asking me some questions. There are two views. Among the critics, the radical critics, and this permeates a lot of our Sunday school literature today, the book of Genesis was not written by Moses. We believe as concerted theologies always believe, that the book of Genesis was written by Moses. And we believe it because Jesus Christ believed it. But the radical critics say no. The radical critics have what they call the documentary theory or the documentary hypothesis. Documentary means documents. And they, they feel that they can find four of them in the book of Genesis. This is called the JEPD theory. When you get Bible dictionaries, you'll run across it. J stands for Jehovah. E stands for Elohim. P stands for priestly document. And D stands for the Deuteronomic document. And what these men say is that there were different writers. One man liked the name Jehovah. One man liked the name Elohim. One man was priestly oriented. One man was law oriented. Deuteronomy, which means Deuteronomy, second law. And that one man, maybe in the 14th, 15th, 13th century, wrote one part. Another man wrote other. Another man wrote other. Another man wrote another. And then in the 8th century, 9th and 8th century B.C., some unknown scribe took all these documents and wove them together, and so to make them acceptable, put the name of Moses to it. And that's called the documentary hypothesis. And it's taught in most seminaries today. It's taught on all liberal seminaries. It's taught on all neo-Orthodox seminaries. And the only seminaries that don't teach it are Orthodox seminaries. And even some neo-evangelicals opt for the documentary hypothesis. Now, we believe, I believe, that the book of uh, the Pentateuch was written by Moses. Why do I believe it? First of all, because all through the first five books, Uh, Exodus, verse 4, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, it quotes Moses' words. Obviously, it wouldn't quote Moses in Genesis because Moses wasn't writing in Genesis. He wasn't living in Genesis. Moses doesn't come onto the scene until the first 10 chapters of Exodus. But in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, it says that Moses said. So there's the claim of those four books. Secondly, the Old Testament writers later on, like Judges and Joshua, quoted and attribute it to Moses. Third, the New Testament writers attribute the five books to Moses. Fourth, and most importantly, Jesus Christ himself attributes it to Moses. John chapter 5, he said, uh, Moses wrote and you did not believe him. In Luke chapter 24, he quotes and attributes it to Moses. Matthew chapter 19, and, and, and several other places, Mo, uh, Jesus quotes the Pentateuch and attributes it to Moses. And the reason I believe that Moses wrote it is because Jesus Christ said he wrote it, see? So Moses wrote Genesis, he wrote Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Now, without going into it extensively, if you look here, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Moses was an eyewitness of all that, except the first few verses of Exodus 1. Moses saw everything in in Exodus, everything in Leviticus, everything in Numbers, and everything in Deuteronomy, except the last chapter, which tells of Moses' death. No doubt Moses kept what's called a travel diary, just as you keep a travel diary. Moses kept a travel diary. So he had no problem with Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Well, what did he do about Genesis? Well, Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3, he got by direct revelation. Nobody was living in Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3. That's when God created the universe and created light and created the, the earth, made the earth and, and, and formed the land and made the animals and made the plants and on the sixth day made Adam. So nobody was present from Genesis 1, 1 to two, three. But from then on, there were people that were present. Now, there's a phrase that comes up ten times, and I'd like you to get your Bibles and look at this little phrase. Genesis chapter 2. Let's start with this one. Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. There's a a little phrase that crops up ten times. Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. These, look at Genesis 2, 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. Now keep your finger there and turn to Genesis 5, 1. Genesis 5, 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. Keep your finger there and turn to Genesis 6, 9. Six, nine, these are the generations. What's the man's name? All right, now when you look here, that word generation, the Hebrew word is toledot. We would translate it history, history. So we have in Genesis 1, 2, 4, this is the history of the heavens and the earth. And we have in Genesis 5, 1, this is the history of Adam. So if you look here now, probably what happened was that that. The first one was given by direct, direct revelation. Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3. Then beginning to Genesis 2, 4, over to the end of Genesis 4, you have the first history, the history of Adam. He probably wrote that section, or perhaps the man behind him wrote that section. And then in Genesis chapter 5, verse 1, you have the history of Adam. Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, will you, will you look at Genesis 6, 9 once again? This is the history of Noah. And look at Genesis chapter 10, verse 1. Genesis 6, 9, the end of chapter 9, verse 29, is the history of Noah. Now Genesis chapter 10, verse 1, to 11, verse 9. Genesis 10, 1. Now these are the generations. This is the history of the sons of Noah. That's a title, you see. There are 11 chapters, so to speak, in the book of Genesis. And these are titles to each one. These are the generations of Noah. Look at chapter 11, verse 10. Genesis 11, verse 10. This is the history of Shem. Look at Genesis 11, verse 27. These are the generations of Terah. Or this is the history of Terah. And along with Terah, of course, Abraham. And Then we skip way over to Genesis 25. You got the history of Terah and his son Abraham. In Genesis 11:27 27, all the way through chapter 25. Look over at chapter 25, verse 12. Now you can see this. Genesis chapter 25, verse 12. Now these are the generations... Or this is the history of Ishmael, Abram's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's handmaid, born to Abram. And these are the names of the son of Ishmael. And he goes on and gives the history of Ishmael there. Then look at Genesis chapter 25, verse 19. And these are the generations, or this is the history. Now, who's there? Who do you have? So he got the history of Isaac following that. And then go over to Genesis chapter 37. I hope I got the right one here. Genesis chapter 37, verse 2. This is the gen- These are generations of who? Uh, you know what happens in Genesis 50? Jacob dies in Genesis 50. So if you look here now. See, the first one, Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 4... Moses got that by direct revelation from God. Nobody was there to see that. Then beginning in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, and running to the end of chapter 4, you have one man that wrote that tradition. Then in Genesis chapter, what was it, 5, 1 to 6, 8, this is the generations of Adam. Then you've got got that that third history. Then beginning at Genesis 6, 9, and running through the end of chapter 9, Chapter 6, verse 9, to the end of chapter 9, you have the fourth history. And then beginning at chapter 6, verse 9, you got the fifth history, and so on down the line. Now, if you look in here, what Moses did when he wrote it, and he wrote it about, say, 1446 to 1406 B.C., Moses got these written traditions. He got the first chapter by direct revelation. He got the other chapter by these written traditions, written by godly men. And then Moses took these, and under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, he wrote the book of Genesis. And under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, whatever was wrong in those traditions, the Holy Spirit prevented him from putting it in. And whatever needed to be added to those, that history, those ten histories, uh, whatever had to be added, The Holy Spirit guided him to add it, see. Whatever needed to be corrected, the Holy Spirit guided him to correct it. So that when Moses got through with the 50 chapters of the book of Genesis, it was perfect, infallible, errorless. So that Moses is the human author, and God is the supernatural author. Now, you know, about 60 years ago, they denied, and I don't want to spend a lot of time here, but they denied the Mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch, including Genesis, on the ground that writing was not known until the 10th or 11th century B.C. And if that's so, Moses couldn't write. And then about 40, 35, 40 years ago, they started discovering written records that go back to 3, 2,500, 3,000 B.C. And they found him in Egypt. And where did Moses go to school? In Egypt. And he was trained in all the arts, the sciences of Egypt. So Moses was quite capable of writing. When it came time to do so, Moses, using these documents and using that travel diary we kept, and under the infallible guidance of the Holy Spirit, Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Now, someone says, what about the last chapter, which tells about Moses' death? Well, probably what happened there was the next writer of the Old Testament took his pen up and wrote Deuteronomy 34, probably Joshua, and finished the book, then wrote the book of Joshua. But it was all written under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, and it's infallible and inerrant, and I believe that Moses was the author of the book of Genesis, and I do so because Jesus believed that. Now, let's go to that next point, the importance of the book of Genesis. The importance of the book of Genesis. Why is Genesis important? I think that the book of Genesis perhaps is the most important, in some respect, most important book in all the Bible. There are three books, I think, that every Christian needs to understand. One is Genesis, one is John, one is Romans. I suppose if I were to study them, I would perhaps start with John and then go to Romans and then go to Genesis. But these three chapters, these three books, are critically important. Now, why? Well, let me suggest two or three reasons and suggest them very quickly. First of all, obviously, Genesis provides us with the only source of reliable information regarding the origin of things. Now, not the origin of cars and overhead projectors and carpets and rostrums, obviously. But Genesis provides us with the only reliable source of information regarding um, uh, these great critical matters in life. Genesis tells us about the origin of the stellar, the solar system. Genesis tells us the origin of space and time. There was no space or time before Genesis 1-1. Genesis tells us the origin of the sun and the moon and the stars. Genesis tells us the origin of plant life and animal life. Genesis tells us the origin of man, the creation of man. Genesis tells us the origin of marriage. And the most important passage on marriage and family life, by the way, is Genesis chapter 2. And the most important verse, I suppose, in all the Bible on marriage is Genesis 2.24. And Genesis tells us about the origin of marriage, the family life. Genesis tells us the... Uh, now, don't turn to 224. See, we'll get there. <laughs> Genesis tells us about the origin of sin. The psychiatrist and the psychologist is troubled about sin today. We all are. Where did it start? How did sin begin? Only the book of Genesis gives us the answer. Genesis tells us about... Um, Genesis introduces us to a thing that's very common today. We read it in a lot of books. A lot of books have in their title the word alienation. When they speak of alienation, they mean of alienation of man to man, alienation of husband and wife, alienation of father and son, alienation of mother and daughter, alienation of brother and brother, alienation of races and groups. Where did this alienation begin? Genesis chapter 4. Genesis 3, vertical. Vertical alienation of man from God. Genesis 4, alienation horizontal, alienation of brother to brother, Cain and Abel. And this horizontal, by the way, will never be finally solved until this one is solved. See? Genesis 3 must be solved before Genesis 4 can be solved. Genesis chapter, the book of Genesis, tells us about the origin of human languages. Genesis 10. Genesis and Genesis 11. Genesis chapter 10 gives us the origin of nations, perhaps the most important document on nations uh, that we have in existence. Genesis 12 to 50 tells us of the origin of the nation of Israel, the Jew. And you know what Jimmy Carter is struggling with today. The Jewish-Arab problem. Where did that problem arise? Where did the Jewish-Arab problem arise? It arose because a man by the name of Abraham listened to his wife. See, it all goes back to the woman. (laughs) Listened to his wife, and and, uh, and, uh, and instead of uh, knowing and doing what he should have done, and took Hagar, and had a child by Hagar, and his name was Ishmael, then had a son by Sarah whose name was Isaac, and Isaac was set against Ishmael. And today over in the Middle East, you have that battle still raging. And Genesis gives us the origin of that battle. So Genesis is important because it provides us the oldest source of information regarding these great realities of life. It's the foundation of all the rest of the Bible. It shows us purpose in life in this universe. It gives us God's mandate for this earth. And I'll speak on that when we come to Genesis 2. And then Genesis provides us with the background for the whole plan of redemption. And I'll speak on that when we get to Genesis 3 so we won't tarry at that point. Number four, purpose. That'll be obvious when we study. Number five, the historical character of the book of Genesis. Now let me spend a minute there. I suppose there are three, maybe four basic ways to approach the book of Genesis. The radical critic approaches the book of Genesis by saying that the book of Genesis is composed of legends. Just as the Babylonians had their legend of creation and their legend of the flood, and just as the Inca Indians had their legends of creation and perhaps the flood and the origin of their race, and just as the Greeks had their legends about the origin of the Greek race, so the Jews had their legends about the beginning of events and the universe and time and especially the Hebrew race, And those legends are found in the book of Genesis. Now, they're legends, and we can't assume that they're historical. That's the radical, critical approach. You find it in a lot of commentaries. The second approach we find is what is called the mythological approach, the mythological approach. And the mythological approach, which is the approach of the New Orthodox, says that... that, uh, what we have in the story of creation and the fall and Noah and Babel is a myth. A myth. Now, when they use the word myth, they, they use it in a technical way. Let me illustrate. Um, we teach our children by these, uh, by the use of what we may call myth. For example, Esau's Fables. You remember Esau's Fables. You remember the story of the fox and the grapes. I got... Hold of Aesop's Fables. I suppose I hadn't read it for 40 years. And I got hold of a copy about three years ago, started reading some of those stories again. Aesop's Fables. I didn't know 40 years ago that they may not have been written by Aesop. But maybe they were, maybe they weren't. But anyway, they're pretty good fables. Now, you remember the story of the fox and the grape? You remember that? You don't? You need to read Aesop's Fables. (laughs) We're going to get it in our bookstore. But uh, he tells the story of the... uh, uh, you know, when he had a great, like Shakespeare, whoever was the author of these tables had a great insight into uh, into human nature. You remember the story of the, uh, uh, what was the the ox and the trough and didn't want anybody else to eat it? He didn't want it, but didn't want anybody else to eat it. That's human nature. Here was this fox. And uh, the fox was walking one day and saw a beautiful, magnificent cluster of grapes and said, those are I'd really like to have those. That's a magnificent cluster of grapes. They really look juicy. They were all so high. So he got on his hind legs, stretched up, and uh, with all of his energy, he missed it by about six inches and dropped down on his legs. Couldn't get it. So I rested a minute, looked up there again. I see this about every time we have final examinations. This is the origin of the term sour grapes. He stretched up on his legs and got about, you know, missed it by about three inches and fell down and rested another minute or two and then finally made a last effort, third time's a charm, stretched with all the nerves that he had and missed it by one inch. Dropped down, walked away, said, well, wasn't worth it. Those grapes are sour anyway. That's the origin of that term, sour grapes. See, wasn't worth it. Now, do you think that that really happened? Was there really a fox who stood up on his hind legs and cogitated and thought and deliberated? No, and Aesop didn't intend for us to think there was a fox. He was using that as a vehicle to teach us a, a deep truth about human nature, that what I cannot get, what I cannot achieve, I tend to, you know, put down. So was it was not worth it? If I could have gotten an A, but I loped around, and fooled around, wasted my time, ended up with a D, well, it wasn't worth an A anyway. And I tend to put down what I could achieve, but I didn't achieve. And and Aesop was using that story as a myth. Now, what these men say, are you following? What they say is that the story of Adam is not, it's true, but it's true mythologically. It's true, but it's not true historically and literally. It's true, but it's not true historically. It's true mythologically. The story of the fall of Adam is true. You ask a man, is that true? Oh, yes, it's true, but true mythologically, not literally. There wasn't a literal Adam, and there wasn't a literal Eve, and there wasn't a literal tree. You're Adam, and I am Adam. Every man is Adam, said Karl Barth. Every man is Adam. And what Genesis 3 portrays is what we all go through when we face temptation. The same with the flood, the same with Abraham, and the same with creation. That's called the mythological approach. And of course, ultimately, it's brought over to the New Testament. I'm always surprised when I hear people buying William Barclay's books, because that's precisely the approach of William Barclay. That's his approach to the virgin birth. Now, he addresses up real nice, and I have his commentary, and I like the fluent way that he states the thing, But when you get all through, he denies the supernatural. He denies the virgin birth. He denies that Jesus turned water into wine. What he says is that that's simply a story told to us to tell us that when Jesus comes into a man's life, he brings joy and peace and happiness. If you ask him, did that really happen? No, it's a myth. Now, I don't believe that. I believe that what we read in Genesis 1 is sober literal history. I believe in Genesis 2 was sober, literal history. I believe we find in Genesis 3 was sober, literal history. I believe there was an Adam. I believe there was an Eve. I believe there was a tree of knowledge, of good and evil. I believe that there was, whatever form it took, a serpent. I believe in the historical, literal interpretation of the book of Genesis. And I believe that the events that happened happened just as they're stated. And the reason I believe that Adam and Eve and Noah and, and Lot and Lot's wife were all historical characters, ultimately the reason I believe is because Jesus Christ in the New Testament referred to them. He called them by name. Jesus believed that Adam was a real man. Jesus believed that Eve was a real woman. Jesus believed that Lot and Lot's wife were real historical persons. Jesus believed the flood. You remember what he said? As it was in the days of Noah. Jesus believed in Noah, and he believed in the flood. And that's why I believe. It. So that when a man says, Why do you believe in these? I say, because Jesus Christ, the Lord of the church, believed them. Then our argument, you see, is no longer about Noah or the flood or Adam and Eve. Our argument now is who is Jesus? If he's God, then he spoke truth, and I accept it. If he's not God, then I expect him not to speak truth. And if you don't accept the flood and Noah and Adam and Eve, then you are not accepting what Jesus said. See? So the issue is not Noah and the flood and Adam and Eve and Lot and Lot's wife and Sodom and Gomorrah. The issue is who is Jesus? If he's God, then what he said is truth. And if he's God, what he said is truth, then I accept it. And the reason I accept the, the events and the people of Genesis is because Jesus Christ believed that the events and the people of Genesis were historical, real, literal events and people. Now you say, you spent some time on that. Yes, I did. And the reason I spent some time on it Is because some of you got children that are going to schools that say that Moses and Noah and the flood and creation are not true events. And some of you are going to read some literature, some religious literature that casts doubt upon these things. May I say to you that I believe in the historicity of the book of Genesis. Now the outline. What is the outline to the book of Genesis? Well, there some men divide it according to that that. Tenfold statement, this is the history of, this is the history of. I don't. I divide it just as you got it there on the outline. You see it on the sheet there? I think there are two great sections of the book of Genesis. First of all, there's the uh, primeval history, the history, the early history of mankind, Genesis 1 to 11. And then secondly, we have the patriarchal history, the history of the beginning of the nation of Israel, Genesis 12 to 50. Now, I wonder if you look up here somewhat like this. Can you you imagine in your mind uh, a great, large river? Let's take the Mississippi River and turn it around. Here's a great, large river. And suddenly out of that great, large river runs a small tributary. And this tributary moves along uh, along for many, many miles. And then eventually this tributary comes back into the great river once again. That's what you have in the Old and New Testament. In Genesis 1 to 11, God deals with that great tributary. He's dealing with all men, all races of men. That's the great great Mississippi River. Genesis 12, he chooses one man and one nation, Israel. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. Those 12 sons became the 12 tribes of Israel. And all through the Old Testament, from 2000 B.C., the day of Abraham, the time of Abraham, up till the days of Jesus Christ, God dealt with this small tributary. Jesus said one time, I am not come but to the lost house of the sheep of Israel. Lost sheep of the house of Israel. I said it wrong to see if you're following. See, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. All right, now look. Up here, you got a cross. Got a cross. And Jesus died, and he died for all mankind. And from that point on, the tributary joins the great river once again. And God is dealing with all men now in this age of grace. Now, does that mean that in this great river, Mississippi, uh, segment that God didn't deal from Genesis 12 on with men and men from other nations were not saved? No. If they trusted God, repented of their sins and trusted God, the God of redemption they were. So we got a Naaman and we got a Melchizedek, neither of whom were Jews. They were saved. God dealt with men individually. But primarily God dealt with the nation of Israel. And Genesis 1 to 11 is the history of, the primitive history of mankind. Genesis 12 to 50 is the history of the patriarchs who form the beginning of the history of the nation of Israel. Now let's go to our study of Genesis 1. Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Now let's read the first five verses of Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. And darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And the morning and the evening and the morning were the first day or, or better. And there came evening, and there came morning, the first day. Now, maybe we can cover these first five verses in the remainder of our session here tonight. Here in Genesis chapter 1, 1 to chapter 2, verse 3, we have the creation of the, um, of the world. The creation of the world. Now, uh, as I mentioned when we started, this um, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 um, constitute today probably the object of more discussion and more attack and more debate than any other chapter in the Bible. And uh, we could spend a whole year on Genesis 1 and 2. We're not, but we could. What I'm going to do is try to touch the highlights and handle some of the problems and then refer you, perhaps, to a couple of good books on the whole subject of creation and evolution. Now, the subject of the origin of the world is is called cosmology. Cosmology. Now, uh, you know what a cosmetic is? Word, the Greek word, if you look here, is, uh, uh, for world, W-O-R-L-D, is cosmos, C-O-S-M-O-S. Now, that's not a television star, cosmos. That word means order or beautify. And cosmos, the word that's translated world, is something that's well-ordered. And the cosmetic is something we use to beautify ourselves. Cosmos, logos, means the study of the universe. Now... When we get down to it, there's only, I suppose, uh, uh, three or four ways we can account for this universe. One is the answer of the materialist. And the materialist says, there's no God. The only thing that's eternal is matter. Bertrand Russell was a materialist. Several of our scientists are materialists. They say, we believe that there is immaterial, like spirit and God, And there's matter like this body and this floor and the trees and mountains. We are what we call, may I use the term, dualists. We believe there's the realm of matter like this and the realm of the spirit. A materialist is a man who doesn't believe that. He believes there's no soul and no God and no angels. The Sadducees were materialists. Bertrand Russell, the great philosopher and economist, who was uh, booted out of the New York City school system many, many, many years ago because he taught at that time way back in the 20s free love and eventually went to England and died at the age of 33, or 93, 94, said, I never really began to think until I got rid of God and the soul and freedom and they all three go together. That's a materialist. Another man says, well... This universe is just part of God. God and the universe are to be identified. Now, can I use a term? That's called pantheism. Christian science is pantheistic. Pan means all, and theos is God, and pantheism says God is the world. And since God is the world, and since God is good, and God is all, and God is good, then everything must be good. And that's why there can't be any death, according to the Christian scientists. And there can't be any disease, according to the Christian scientists. See? And there are more pantheists in the world today than there are Christians. The religions of India are pantheistic. Some of the religions of China are pantheistic. And a pantheist and unity school of Christianity and Christian science are pantheistic. God is all. And God is good. And therefore, all is good. I remember uh, years and years ago, I was back in California between college and seminary, and I was working for a a laundry concern where they, and part of this laundry in Pasadena called the Peacock Laundries, and I was telling Dr. McGee, who was homeless in Pasadena, about this. This Peacock Laundry, one of their things was to clean uh, um, sofas and chairs. In fact, the fellow that had the the laundry subletted, the cleaners sublet this thing out to a certain fellow who happened to be a friend of mine and I was home for the summer and worked there. And they cleaned rugs also. So we got a rug from a hole. and we took it over to his place and cleaned it. I thought we did a real nice job. And we took it back one day. Now this lady was a Christian science reader. And you know, according to Christian science, there's no sickness, no death, no sin, no evil, no imperfection. It's all in your mind, see? So we took that rug back, cleaned real nice, and we laid it out. And she was telling us about Christian science, and we laid it out, tell us no evil, no imperfection, no sin, no problem. We were laying out that rug. We got through about ready leaf, leave, and there was a kind of a wrinkle in the rug. <laughs> and I got over there and tried to, t- and she pointed out, you know, and I worked a little on it, and pulled it, and worked on it, pulled it, and worked on it. We worked on it for about 15 minutes. Couldn't come out. So I finally said to her, I just meant it as a joke, but she, she, I said, no, that's not really there. That's just in your mind. <laughs> she didn't appreciate that humor. See? Well, she didn't convert me and I didn't convert her, but that's pantheism, see? Identifies the universe with God. But Genesis 1, 1 says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, distinguishes them. Genesis 1, 1 is the greatest verse on God, perhaps in all the Bible. And it tells us that God cannot be identified with his creation. Now, let's come to Genesis. Let's look at this. What is the structure of this? Well, let me, let me if I may, state to you what I believe. Now, there are various ways, and might as well lay this in the context, the way that Bible believers approach Genesis 1. Now, when you look here, some people say some people say that uh, when we come to Genesis 1 one to Genesis 30, or Genesis two verse three, that Genesis one gives us the original creation of the world Genesis chapter one verse two, between verse one and verse two, Satan fell, and Satan was the head of this earth, and therefore this earth was Was cast into a chaotic state. And God judged this earth. And Genesis 1 2, the earth was without form and void, ought to read, the earth became formless and waste. And that condition in Genesis 1 2 existed for hundreds of thousands of years, perhaps millions of years. And then in Genesis chapter 1 verse 3, to the end of Genesis, In six days of 24 hours, God began to reform the earth that he had made. And all of the geological ages of the geologists can be put into verse 2. Now, I was brought up on that view. Seminary that I attended, many of the men adopted that view. And that's held by many Bible believers. I suppose I held it because it was taught in the Scofield Bible. And I I love the Scofield Bible began preaching with the Scopio Bible. I have not to hold that view today. That's called the gap theory. And the whole purpose of that theory was to get long periods of time that would accommodate uh, accommodate the view to the geological ages of the scientists, the so-called geological ages. That's called the gap view, the gap theory, or the cataclysmic theory, or the reconstitution theory. Now, second view, and this view is to get time, is that the days of Genesis 1 are not 24-hour days. That the days of Genesis 1 are long periods of time. And this view is to get time, is that the days of Genesis 1 are not 24-hour days. That the days of Genesis 1 are long periods of time. The day of the Lord, for example, is a 1,000 years. The day of the Lord includes the tribulation, seven years, and the millennium a thousand years so the day of the Lord is a thousand and seven years and so some men tell us that the days of Genesis one are not 24-hour days they are long periods of time maybe ten thousand years maybe a hundred thousand years that's called the day age theory now I don't I don't have to know that myself there are some very wonderful Christians over there Matter of fact, one of our board members, now dead, Major Allen, wrote a booklet on it. Major Allen was very vigorously committed to what is called the day-age theory. Now, another view is that, that the days of Genesis, there's no gap, no cataclysm, that the days of Genesis chapter 1 are 24-hour days, but between each day was a long period of time. We have a speaker at our school, General Harrison, a Korean peace priest, chairman of the board of Dallas Theological Seminary, who holds to this view. When I was here, I talked to them about it. Now, I happen not to hold it. These are held by Bible believers. Another view is the view that the days of Genesis 1 are not days of creation. They are days of revelation. They're not six days in which God created but six days in which God showed these things to Moses. So we have no way of knowing how long those days were. And then finally, among Bible believers, now I'm not talking about agnostics, and I'm not talking about the liberals, I'm talking about among Bible believers. Among Bible believers, there's a view that there was no gap between Genesis 1 1 and Genesis 1-3, and that the days of Genesis 1, verse 3, to Genesis 1, verse 31, are literal 24-hour days. And that's called a recent creation view. Now, I used to hold the gap theory. And then later on, I adopted the page theory, to be real honest and frank. But I'm inclined, the last several years, I'm inclined to that view. Now, you say, well, that's the view of Usher, 4 B.C., 1,000 B.C.? Well, no, because there may be some gaps in the genealogies of Genesis 5 and 10. But my inclination, my my present conviction is that this universe is not much older than 10, 12, 15,000 years. That that what we have in Genesis chapter 1 were six literal 24-hour days. That there may be some gap, maybe some time in the genealogies of Genesis 5 and 10, which we will study when we get there. But that what we have in Genesis 1 is a record of creation of the earth, the heavens and the earth, in literal 24-hour days. Now, right away, somebody says, that one's counter to all, all the findings of science and all the time clocks that we have. Well, our answer to that, and there are a group of scientists today who have addressed themselves to this problem, and they're outstanding scientists. The answer to that is, is flood geology. Not uniformitarianism, but flood geology. And essentially that means that when the flood took place, it was a universal flood. And it was tremendous. And it knocked all these time clocks like carbon deposits, into a cocktail. And therefore we can't get behind the flood, let's say behind 3500 BC with any sort of accuracy. Secondly, secondly, that when God created this universe, he created it with an appearance of age in it. Now that's a debated issue, been going on for 25, 30 years. I remember 1951, 52, there was a uh, article in his magazine, InterVarsity magazine, which there was a debate between Lawrence Cole who was a scientist at Columbia University and at that time was chairman of the Board of Young Life, and Cornell, who later became the president of Fuller Seminary, and was over this debate. Did God create the universe with the appearance of it? That is, we got light rays striking in the daytime this earth, and also at night for that matter. They've been traveling for 100,000 years at the speed of 186,000 miles per second. Now, if God created. God created that light ray up there at the beginning, then this universe is 100,000, at least 100,000 years old. But if God created, and I'm making this very simple, I'm using almost a ludicrous illustration to make it simple. If God created this universe with that light ray already striking the earth, then we have no way of gauging the age. Well, my feeling is that when God operates in creation, He creates with the appearance of age. We got two illustrations. When God created Adam, He didn't create him a little infant. He created him full grown. Second, when Jesus performed miracles, for example, the turning of water into wine, He didn't turn the water into wine over a period of six, eight, or ten months. He turned water into wine almost instantaneously. Now, if a man came up who hadn't been there at that wedding feast and looked at that wine, he would have said, My, that's been a preparing, that's been fermenting for 10 months, 12 months. See, that's the appearance. It's been fermenting for 10 or 12 months. But as a matter of fact, Jesus did it instantaneously. But it had the appearance of age. So in the creation of the world, when God created the animals, he created them with the appearance of age. When God created the solar system, he created it with the appearance of age. God created the plants, he created with the appearance of age. And when God created man and Adam and Eve, he created them with the appearance of age. Now after that, when a plant, a seed just falls in, then it grows. And when a baby is born, it grows. It develops in the mother, and then it's born, and then it grows. But at the beginning, God created all things with the appearance of age, see? Now, that's true, and I think it is. If that's true, and I think it is, and secondly, if the flood had such great cataclysmic effects upon this earth that it damaged our time clocks, what I am saying, and I hope you're following me, is that we can't depend upon these normal scientific ways of dating things back of, say, 3,000, 3,500 B.C., Now, carbon dating is is a very fine instrument for dating things. Men can take manuscripts today, and and by process of carbon dating, they can date these manuscripts within 25 years. 50 years ago, the only way they could do it was the style of the writing and and the type of vocabulary. And they might only get within 50 years. But today, by the process of carbon dating, they can date manuscripts that were written in the first century within 15 or 20 years. It's accurate. But behind 3,000 beyond the flood, back of the flood no no plus god created this universe with the appearance of age in it therefore we have no way of knowing how old this is i have to believe that i am to believe that this universe was created in relatively short time man says six days listen if god wanted to he could have created in 6 minutes see once we admit there's a supernatural and that god can create why couldn't he create animals full born? Why couldn't he create this universal appearance of age? Why couldn't he create coal or diamonds in the earth? Why couldn't he? There's no reason he couldn't, see? He created man with the appearance of age. Whenever God worked a miracle, Jesus' miracles, it had the appearance of age. Therefore, if that's so, then we have no way of knowing. And I suppose, and I'm anticipating myself, that. I suppose that this, uh, this uh, creation took a span of... takes us back about twelve, 15,000 years. Now, let's look at the, the movement of thought, and verse 1 will be finished. What do we have here? What I think we have here, and uh, I hope I can get over here to this place. What I think we have in Genesis um, chapter 1, 1 to 2, 3... This is the first time I've used this, and I don't even know if I can get this thing on, And uh, which I can. <laughs> Brad, do you know how to get this thing on here? This is the new one they got here, and I can't. You know, I don't know where they got that thing plugged in. Well, that's a good way to start off. <laughs> I can't see it. Now, that's a button, but something's wrong with the switch. All right, anyway, if you look up here, here's what I think. We, I think we have four basic things in Genesis 1:1 to Genesis 2, verse 3. Number one, we have in verse 1, Genesis 1-1, we have uh, the initial act of creation. In Genesis 1-1, we have the creation of what we would call the space-time universe or the space-time-mass universe. Genesis 1.1, we have the creation of the world. The space, time, mass, universe. Genesis 1, we have the creation of space. No space because God isn't subject to space. No space before Genesis 1.1. We have the creation of time. There was no time before Genesis 1.1 because God is not subject to time. And mass, that is material. What does John 4.24 say? God is a what? Spirit, so there was no matter before Genesis 1 1. So in Genesis 1, we have the creation, the primeval creation of our space, time, mass, universe. Number 2, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, we have the state. We have the state of that, of the earth when it was created. We have the state of the earth when it was created. And then number 3, in six days, and I believe days of twenty four hours each, we have six days of creation and formation of that earth that God created in Genesis one one. And then in Genesis chapter two, verses one to three, we have the seventh day, the day of God's rest. Now let's look at these first two verses, will you please? Genesis chapter one, verse one and Genesis chapter one, verse two. All right, Genesis 1.1. 1, 1. Let's look at it. Here's the, uh, here's the fact of creation. The primeval act of the creation of the heavens and the earth. Here's the primeval act of creation. And every word's important. We won't have time to look at every word, but every word's important. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. In the beginning. Now, you know that, that shows up three times in the beginning. First John 1.1. 1, 1. John 1.1. 1, 1. Genesis 1 was. Here's the beginning of time. Augustine was once asked, once asked, when did time begin? When did God make time? God created time at the same time that he created the universe. There was no need for time before that. See, we, time for us is, is duration through succession. Past, present, future. But with God, God is not subject to past. Present, future. God doesn't need time, so God created time. Second, He created space. In the beginning, God created the heavens, and that's space. Space. God created the heavens. Space. Now, did He create the sun, the moon, and the stars? No, not now. He created the sun, the moon, and stars on the fourth day. God created light before He created the sun, the moon, and the stars. Second thing God created was space, vast space, the heavens. Now, when we come to the Bible, we find that there, if you look up here, there are three heavens in the Bible. And I don't think this is crude literalism. I have to believe this is correct. Uh, When we come to the Bible, we, we find that the Bible speaks of three heavens. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul said he was taken up to the third heaven. What are those three heavens? Well, the first heaven... The first heaven is the atmospheric heaven. The heaven in which the birds fly and the airplanes fly, the atmos uh, atmospheric heaven. Now that heaven was made on the second day. That heaven was made on the second day when God divided the waters from above from the waters beneath. The waters that covered the world from that great water canopy that was destroyed at the flood and put in between that what's called the firmament, the expanse. That's the first heaven. Then beyond that's the second heaven. That's the sidereal heaven, the heaven of the planets and the stars, the heaven of Venus and Jupiter. Then beyond that, wherever it is, is the third heaven. What heaven is that? That's the heaven of God's throne. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24 says that Jesus passed into the heavens. What heaven? Where the throne of God is. And it mentions the throne of God. Now, were all three heavens created in Genesis 1-1? Well, the first one was the atmospheric heaven, and the second one was the sidereal heaven in which God later placed the sun and the moon and the stars. Did he create that third heaven? Well, I don't know. I've wrestled with that. i wrestle with that. See, heaven means space. And God doesn't need space. Now that third heaven is where the angels are, the the, the elect angels. The angels didn't fall. They're in that heaven. And it says that, that in Colossians 1 16 that God created all things, Jesus created all things visible and invisible, angels, whether they be in below the earth or on the earth or in the heaven, the third heaven. Now, that's so, then God created angels in Genesis 1-1 when he created the third heaven. God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the second thing God created, second thing God created in Genesis 1-2 is the earth, the earth. God created this earth, this earth upon which we stand, but it was formless and void. Now, let's go to verse 2. We'll look at this, and then we'll be through. Now, I think what you have in verse 2 is a statement of the condition of the earth when it was created. I think in verse 2 we have a statement of the earth when it was created. I don't think myself there was any cataclysm that cast this earth in this condition. What is the fourth word in your Bible in verse 2? Was. That's the state of the earth when it's created. Now, how, what was it like? The earth was without form and void... And darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Now I notice there are three statements there. First of all, the earth was without form and void. Second, darkness was upon the face of the deep, and third, the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Now I want you to look at four things in verse two. Four things, four things about this about this earth when God created it. He didn't create a chaos. He didn't create it a chaos. That He created. Unfinished. Will you look here, for example? Here's the Lord Jesus when he was born. Let's say here he is at the age of of, uh, six months. Baby, his mother's arm. Was he perfect? Was Jesus perfect? Six months. Yes. Was he complete? No. No, he wasn't a man yet. Here he is at six years of age. Was he perfect at six? Yes. Was he complete? No. He hadn't reached manhood. Here's Jesus at 12. Perfect? Yes. But not complete. God wasn't finished with the human nature of Jesus. So in Genesis 1-1, we have the creation of the heavens, and then immediately the creation of this earth. It's perfect. It comes from the hand of God. It's perfect, but it's not finished. It's, so to speak, in rough form. What God is going to do in the next six days is form that. Now, there are four things. Look at verse 2. And the earth was, number one, without form. What does that word mean? It means it was formless, formless. Without form, form formless. Will you look here? Formless. So what does God do on the third day? On the second day, he separates the waters that are around this earth, and the whole earth was covered with water, from that water canopy. On the third day... He divides the waters on this planet, earth, and the dry land appears, and God gives it form. But prior to that, it was formless, covered all together with water. What's the second thing you have there? Without form, what's the second word? All right, now look here. What is that void? Well, that word void means literally uninhabited. Uninhabited. It means empty. This earth was created, but it was covered with water, no form, and it was empty. What do you mean empty? No plants on it. No animals on it. No man on it. It was empty. It was uninhabited. Number three. Number three. And darkness is upon the face of the deep. What is the deep? Well, you see what it is. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. The deep. The deep. What is the deep? Well, in Psalm and the New Testament... In the book of Jonah, the deep is a reference to the oceans. But at this time, there were no oceans because this whole earth was covered with water. The whole earth was covered with water. So that's the third condition, totally covered with water. What's the fourth condition? And what was on the face of the deep? There was total darkness. There was no light. Now, will you look here? Here's this earth. What was it like? Number one, formless, had no shape to it, no shape. Second, empty, void, empty, uninhabited, no animals, no vegetation, no man. Third, deep, it was covered entirely by water, and number four, it was totally dark. Now, my friend, you looking here? What do you think God did in the next six days? He brought this difficult. Completion, see? He remedied, so to speak, those four things. It was formless, so he put the mountains and the rivers and the oceans. It was empty, uninhabited, so he put on vegetation and animals and plants and birds and great fish and man himself. Three, it was deep, it was covered by water, so God divided the waters. The water's above from the water's beneath. and made the ocean. And number four, what was the fourth thing about it? Darkness. So what did God do on the first day? He created light. Not light from the sun. Created light. And on the fourth day, he made the sun and the moon and the star. So in Genesis 1-1, we have God's initial creative act of this space, time, mass, Universe. In Genesis 2, we got the state and condition of that earth when God created it. And in Genesis 3, Genesis 1 verse 3 to Genesis 1 verse 31, we have the six days in which God dealt with these, can I call them deficiencies, and brought this earth to a perfect fruition. Now that's what we're going to take up next time. Now my mind is staggered a little. See? (laughs) Yours is perhaps also.